Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Love a bit of scuttlebutt. Uh, and joining me in the studio now, uh, as he does once a month, to talk about comic books for our drawn-out segment, Bernard Kellyo. Do you have any scuttlebutt about the world of comics and graphic novels? Always, Richard Watts. Always. There's always scuttlebutt. There's always scuttling creatures moving around the corners of the room. There's there, always... There are. <laughs> um... Roll your sanity roll right now. Um, so, uh, but 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 that's oh, that's right. I was going to greet you this morning with a, with a, a type of the morning to you, Richard Watts. Uh, um, but possibly best you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Probably better that I don't. However, uh, um, we will be talking uh, Irish. If, if we won't be speaking in Irish accents or bad Irish accents, we will be speaking about Irish comics because I have foisted them upon you. You have foisted them upon me, and. Like a lot of foists, uh, this uh, was indeed a foist for me to go, oh, Irish comics. I wonder about Irish comics. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Irish comics en general, and then we can zone in on these two uh, Irish comics that you lent me from your travels last year. Well, uh, these are ones that I actually – my travels were in 2019. Ten. Last year, no one no, went no, anywhere. No, good point. Um, <laughs> but having – been over there and visited independent comic shops okay. where I could in Cork and Dublin and Belfast and picked up some comics there yes. in that way that happened yeah. through the, the magic of social media. You start following mm. one or two comic creators, they start tweeting or posting about somebody else. And so the two books that I foisted upon you, which yes. you will be talking about shortly, uh, I picked up. Uh, I ordered uh, last year once I'd come back to Australia okay. to go, oh, I want to find out more about these creators. Yes, lovely, lovely, lovely. Okay, so let's talk Irish comics. And what I suppose to frame even that discussion uh, by another um, frame, which is just that every – I'm very interested, of course, as listeners know, in Australian comics and the Australian comics scene, Australian comics culture. But what's really interesting is to look at, say, at other countries, um, particularly ones that are not the givens. So the givens are American comics culture, France's comics culture, and Japan's comics culture. These are sort of the the the, the big the big uh, uh, wrestlers in the room. Uh, and it's really nice to go. Oh, I wonder what's happening in say, you know, not that Germany is a small place, but what's German comics culture like? What 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 um, what characterises it? What what are the crossovers with other places? What's Finnish? Comics culture, like so, it's great to examine, examine uh, uh, Irish comics culture and to see that, uh, and, and to realise, of course, oh, of course, I've been reading work by Garth Ennis uh, for twenty-five years, and uh, yes, okay, yes, he's from Belfast, and you know that's that's he, you know, he's he's been the Irish comics guy for a long time, working for Marvel and DC, and he's uh, the chap who, so he's a comics writer. Uh, and with um, he gave us uh, the series Preacher, for indeed, example, with Steve Dillon, which yeah. then got turned into a, a TV, TV series, yeah. and The Boys as well, which has more recently been a TV so- a series. Uh, and he started at, with two th- as many uh, comic book. Comic book, comic book people in the UK do start with 2000 AD, which is a weekly comics magazine that you get at your newsagents, and that's where Judge Dredd and other um, beautiful ultraviolet, uh, <laughs> and and I, I suppose 
it, it, it seems to me that 2000 AD carries the flame of the short comic story with the twist ending as well. That sort of that that which which, which was that banner which was raised by EC Comics in America in the fifties. Uh, they have continued to keep that little that little short, sharp, punchy story going. That's two thousand AD. So he starts in two thousand AD, goes and works for the big uh, big two, but mostly I think DC in America, but also um, Image. So Garth Ennis, but what and um, but what's been happening in the la in the the new millennium really is that there's been a, 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 a an enormous um, uh, uh, um, number of new Irish comic book makers are going over and doing work for the big two, for Marvel and DC. So these are names that I came across, uh, Stephen Byrne and Cam Tawney and Will Sliney. They, um, all of these, cha- uh, these chaps actually uh, are doing work for Marvel. Sliney also has done a book of his own called, um, he's written and drawn, uh, Celtic Warrior, The Legend of Cool Culain, which is a uh, reworking of the Ulster uh, cycle, the Ulster cycle of Irish myths. Uh, Also uh, a a very interesting-looking colourist, Triona Tree Farrell, uh, who uh, colours work for, again, for Marvel and DC. Um, so these people are really working in quite genre, genre forms or, you know, that's a superhero comics and, uh, adventure comics. Um, interestingly though, uh, the, uh, the, the, and the Ulster cycle yes. in a superhero vein, yes. but still very much a traditional, uh, I guess, classical Irish legend being recreated by contemporary comic artists. So infused with superhero tropes, perhaps. Yes, but, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and certainly, I mean, just from the image I saw on, on, on online, you know, really, I mean, he, that Cook Colain is, is as ripped as Thor, I think the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, the phrase is. Uh, uh, yeah, and the, they, of course, those myths and legends are, are, are ones that are uh, very uh, well suited to comics as a form of reimagining, revisioning. Um, out of this ferment, foment even, uh, comes a chap, Declan Shalvey. And he starts working for Marvel Comics uh, in 2009. He's a protege of Garth Ennis, uh, sorry, of, yeah, of Garth Ennis's, and he and Garth Ennis uh, work together. So Shelby, although he does small uh, uh, small print stuff in, in 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 Ireland, then he's really known. It becomes known as a an artist, uh, a drawer of superheroes for particularly Marvel, and in fact. I think it was last year, Marvel released a, a book called The Art of Declan Shelby, which is a collection of his covers of, um, you know, of, of Spider-Man and, 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 and Captain America and Iron Man, but those, those sorts of people, those sorts of people, characters, characters. <laughs> characters are people too. Hey, come on, <laughs> let's, let's, not, let's not diss the, uh, diss, diss the character. Um, so, so yeah, he starts in two, 2009 and he does an adaptation of, I think his first American work is an adaptation of 28 Days Later, the uh, vampire uh, franchise, vampire film. Because well, it started out as a comic book or a graphic novel, then oh, it became right. a film. Oh, I see. I didn't know and that. I, just, I think it then, uh, it's, yeah, it's become, it has become a franchise yeah. to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, but these, so, so. That's just to all that setup is to say, okay, this Declan Shelby guy, he's a 
superhero artist guy. Great, great, great. Um, but these two books that uh, Richard ha- has loaned me uh, are both hard-boiled noir crime books, and they're both set in Ireland. Uh, one, uh, let's talk about Savage Town first. Uh, that comes out in 2017. Both these books come out from Image Comics, which is a publisher, which as a publisher, I think we could probably say is the, 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 the challenger to Marvel and DC in terms of the big publishers, the big publishers of, of, um, of genre comics uh, in, in America. This uh, image from its inception was more interested in supporting uh, creators' rights uh, and... and Which is perhaps one of the big differences between... uh, that really differentiates Image Comics from Marvel and DC, who've had a long history of uh, ignoring the rights of creators or overlooking them and creators actually having to wage public campaigns to get not just recognition for their work in creating characters, but some money uh, to support them in their old age, for example, Artwork back. I was reading an account yesterday. I think it was in the seventies of a, of a comic book artist going into Marvel and seeing them a, a staffer there uh, knifing through original pages and and throwing them in in the bin. And and this this uh, chap uh, you know said, "You got to stop that. You got to stop that right now. Uh, I'm just going to go and and this guy's just oh, I've just been told to do this. Stop that right now. I'm going to go and talk to the people at the top because it was a it must be the seventies because it was just the moment that they were realising that this stuff was worth money. Yeah, uh, it's and- the, it's. Uh, the same time that the BBC was wiping uh, the original tapes of Doctor Who, for example, no. going, uh, no one's ever going to uh, watch these, <laughs> want this old television. Let's wipe the valuable master tapes and reuse them. Wow. Uh, so it was uh, on par with, yeah. uh, I mean, what the, the comic publishers were doing there was going, oh, original comic art, no one's ever going to want yeah. that because yeah. these are cheap, disposable objects that you read once and throw away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the original artwork is just like the pens or, or the, the, the photocopier. It's just the raw material that we feed in to make the real thing, uh, which is the comic. Anyway, uh, yeah, so... Uh, so it, get back, getting back to Image Comics, Image Comics was, was built or begun on the premise that uh, all creators own their own work uh, and that, uh, yes, yeah, so, so anyway, so they're a, 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 an interesting player in the world of American, uh, American comics. Okay, Savage Town. So Savage Town uh, is written by Declan Shalvey. Chap who we've been talking about, best known as an illustrator, best known yep. as an illustrator, uh, and the art is main art is by Philip Barrett. Uh, the other elements of it, uh, uh, lettering, colouring, are by other other artists. But this is a book that bites your head off. Uh, I found anyway. I, I, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a softy, and um, whoa, we are sort of what did I think a puffer jacket noir? You know, it's it's that sort of suburb, and we're and we're in um, in, in, uh, in Limerick, Limerick yep. City, Limerick City, uh, which was nicknamed Stab City for a while. Okay, so okay, thank you very much. Well, look, you're definitely in Stab City in Savage Town. Uh, the, uh, the the main the central character uh, Jimmy. Savage uh, is uh, involved in, you know, there's a lot of gang. It's, it's all gang. It's all gangs on the streets. Uh, as You know, it's the, uh, the argot of these, like it's very, 
it's amazing to read a, a book that is so Irish in its accent, in, in, in the way that the words are spelled and the amount of swearing that is... Uh, <laughs> Lots of that, de- that, that, that decorates, decorates the language. It's... It's one of the things that I found fascinating about this book. It was uh, perceived, uh, I, I think, imagined as the first volume in a series that was going to uh, tell all of the story of uh, essentially the, the rise, rise and fall yes. of a crime figure. And yes. volume one definitely uh, is very much about the rise of a kind of an, a very, very low-level gangster to yes. somebody who kind of begins to, to climb and, and amass more power. Yes. He's not... An attractive character. He's a. <laughs> it, it's a brutal, nasty comic. It is a brutal, nasty comic, and in that, I suppose, uh, betrays or, or sort of sh- shows the you know the the the, the Ennis tradition that he's working in. You know, it's 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 possibly not as grotesque as as Ennis, but mainly because Ennis, I think, is more fantastical in, in, in what he allows. This is very street level. Nothing happens that is supernatural or, or, or you know, out of the bounds of genetic possibility. <laughs> it's very, in a sense, kitchen sink, um, uh, 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 very grounded, very, very grounded uh, in the social realities, in the uh, families. It's a very, very family uh, based based drama, family, gangs, rivalries, hatreds. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliantly plotted. Um, I, I really rate uh, Philip Barrett's work, the, the drawing work on this. I f- I sort of feel like these this artwork this artwork puts me in mind of uh, independent uh, comics, a little bit like Dan Clow's, or it it feels. Um, it's not. I, I, it's not slick. It feels. Uh, it's got an appropriate grit to match absolutely. the story and the and the tone. Really, of, yeah. really, yeah. really great. And uh, yeah, brutal. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> brutal. Yes. Brutal, brutal and brilliant. Brutal and brilliant. And uh, what is interest? I, what is interesting to hear you say, uh, Richard, about it being intended as the beginning of a longer arc is that I think leads us to Bog Bodies, which is his book, the book that Shelby wrote of last year, or published last year, also by Image. And the art here is by a person called Gavin Fullerton, um, with colours and letters by other by other um, creators, other Irish creators. But the look of this book is, it's a much simpler book. It's it's shorter, certainly, but but it's a simpler premise it feels more I, I would say savage town feels a bit like a series like a tv series whereas this feels like a film yeah it's very and it and it feels more nuanced kind yes. of, uh, you can see that uh declan shelby as a comic book writer has improved his his craft yes. between these two books and bog bodies is much more self-contained more confident uh and more accomplished i think the the narrative is uh, is more striking, and the the look of it, the painterly Ooh. look Ooh. of the landscape. It's set in the uh, in the the Dublin Hills mm-hmm. uh, at night. It's bleak. It's cold. Uh, and instead of having the kind of gritty brutality uh, of his of the earlier book, it's uh, it is still brutal. But it's a it just feels like a more nuanced and accomplished piece of of comic book storytelling. Yes, I, I agree. I think that it has. There's a, there's not as much brutality, just because there's not just there's just not as much violence uh, in, in it. But but it's it's certainly th- that 
that is a that is a strong strand and a driver of the drama, um, but we are much more interested in this book in the um, the emotion, uh, the emotional, the, the the inner life, the inner life of the main character who we're who we're who we're following, who is on the run, who is being hunted down uh, by uh, fellow members of a gang, um, and it 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 works as this sort of real uh, tra- uh, um Mousetrap of a, of of a, of a storyline, and the, the the tension keeps ratcheting up. There's not as much writing in terms of words on the page in this book. This book is written more visually, uh, and I think that that's a a, a great a great um, aspect to it. Um, you really spend a lot of time uh, on uh, on these in these hills at night, very worried about what 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 will happen to to uh, our main bloke when he you know he turns the next hill as 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 he as he's pursued um, by these by these two other chaps. So yeah, Bog Bodies is a, definitely a more accomplished work. Um, the the and the artwork is stronger. Uh, it's a different artist, uh, but it's 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 a stronger look and a stronger piece. So yeah, really interesting uh, pair of books to compare. I'm uh, yeah. glad you enjoyed yeah. them. I'm glad you went down a bit of an Irish comic book wormhole. <laughs> I really did. I really did. So now, thank you very much. Pleasure. Now we're almost out of time. Oh my gosh! Can I just talk very quickly then about uh, a local uh, comic? Uh, so this is the pub for, this is the graphic novel. Uh, debut by Scribe Publication. So I'm very excited and I tap, take my hat off to Scribe. I think Scribe, yes, good on you. More more graphic novels, please. It's a book called Two Week Wait by Luke Jackson and, he, and uh, his partner Kelly Jackson and illustrated by Mara Wilde. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book about this uh, a fictional couple on their um, a journey to conceive an IVF child. So I'm really recommending A Two-Week Wait by Luke and Kelly Jackson, art by the German illustrator Mara Wild. It gives a lot of information about this, this couple's journey uh, on the IVF uh, uh, travails, uh, but uh, I think Mara Wild's illustrations, which are beautiful, uh, uh, watercolour and quite cartoonish, very sensitive, I suppose, uh, drawings really leaven the story and make it, give it life and light on the page. So that's Two Week Wait, published by Scribe, by Luke Jackson and Kelly Jackson and Mara Wilde. Which you will find in good independent bookshops. You, indo- you indeed will. And the other two books we were talking about, which were Bog Bodies and, and Savage, Town. Savage Town, by written by the Irish uh, comic book maker Declan Shelby, those you would probably need to order directly in from... Uh, from, from image, from image, or you could go to um, uh, All Star Comics in the city. And, yes, uh, yeah, which and is a great, great place to buy comics. Excellent, yeah. beauty, Bernard. Thanks for coming in. No problem. See you next time. Triple R. Dr. Angela Hessen is the curator of Australian painting, sculpture, and decorative arts to 1980. That's the full title uh, at the National Gallery of Victoria. And Angela joins us on the line this morning to talk about the exhibition currently showing at the Ian Potter Centre, NGV Australia, at Federation Square, She Oak and Sunlight, Australian Impressionism. Angela, a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. This is 
an exhibition which intrigues me on a number of levels. It, in one way, it's, it could be seen as the companion piece to the big international Impressionism, impressionism exhibition that's coming soon to NGV in St Kilda Road. But I would imagine that you, in some ways, wouldn't want it to be framed in that way. You don't want Australian art to be overshadowed by those, I don't know, those bloody Parisians and their friends. <laughs> that's an interesting way of looking at it, Richard. I mean, with... Impressionism in general, I think in some ways looking at the idea of national boundaries isn't always helpful. Impressionism is an inherently international movement. And so I think what's happening in Australia is integrally related to what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, and it's, I mean, we're terming, you know, we're terming the movement Australian Impressionism and, and the works that are included in the exhibition are artists who all spent um, a good portion of their lives here, but many of them were born overseas. Um, I think, you know, it's wonderful that we have a sense of um, ownership and attachment to these artists, but I think acknowledging their links to the international context is incredibly productive too, and, and having the opportunities to see the two exhibitions in tandem, I think, will be a really wonderful and rare opportunity. One of the things that particularly intrigued me about She Oak and Sunlight, having had the, the pleasure of seeing it, as I mentioned, is I guess there's the, the myth-making aspect of Australian Impressionism that many of us are familiar with from art classes in high school, for example. Uh, and the, there's also works which you know by sight and having the opportunity to see them in the flesh is fascinating. What struck me in particular, there's one room of the exhibition dedicated to a very early exhibition of Australian Impressionists and there are works in there painted on cigar box lids. Some of them I knew were small, some I'd seen reproduced and I had no idea of their actual scale, their, the, the fact that they are so small until I walked into this room and saw them collectively. Uh, and that fascinated me as well, the fact that the power of an artwork uh, can grow well beyond its actual scale in terms of cultural <laughs> impact. Yeah, Good point, Richard, and it's it's a really interesting thing too that I think we all imagine that we're very familiar with these works. We've grown up seeing them reproduced. Um, you know, many of them are familiar from you know a thousand placemats. Um, but with the group of works that you're referring to, those are works that were exhibited in the Nine by Five exhibition in 1889. And as you say, they are mostly on a very small scale. That exhibition was titled Nine by Five for the Dimension of the cigar box lids on which many of the works were painted. And another thing that we can forget when we think about these works as familiar, beloved icons of Australian art history is just how revolutionary and how controversial they were at the time that they were first painted. So these were works that were produced for an exhibition that was in many ways a kind of manifesto of modern art at the time. This was the first intentionally impressionist exhibition in Australia. It was held in Melbourne in 1889. And in painting those works on cigar box lids, the artists were really suggesting a, a radical departure from the structure, the discipline, also the elitism of the academic tradition. And these were works that were painted very, very quickly. So you can see that incredible loose brushwork that we associate with Impressionism and the idea of capturing the moment. 
And massed together, there were 183 works in the exhibition. They were an extraordinary kind of snapshot of modern life and modern art technique. So I think, yeah, as you say, the experience of seeing all of those works in the flesh is tremendously exciting. And often, for all that they are things which might seem very familiar to us, we get completely new perspectives on them. Earlier in the year, I talked to your colleague, Dr Miranda Wallace, senior curator at the NGV, about the French Impressionism exhibition, which is coming. And one of the questions that I had for her was, given that art history in the past has been very gender-biased, the, the myth of the, the male genius artist has, been, uh, has dominated art canon, for example, despite the fact that we know no artist works in isolation, they're always influenced, they have kind of peers and colleagues and friends and family who help shape their work. Uh, the, 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 the sole genius is, is a very rare thing. But one of the things that I asked was, how would that exhibition of French impressionisms, fr- French impressionist works, kind of tip uh, tip the balance or, or, or rebalance the the canon to show that women were painting at that period as well? And she mentioned that of uh, over a hundred works that are coming to Melbourne from Boston, two of them, two single paintings, yeah. were by women. So seeing this yeah. exhibition, She Oaken Sunlight, was such uh, a pleasure to see that there is a real focus on saying, no, women were part of this movement, let's bring them back into the historical narrative. That was such an important thing for us. It was... um, and. Not just in terms of this exhibition. I think it's something that we really have to acknowledge and own about our national collections is that women are massively underrepresented throughout them, and, you know, particularly for historical work. And this is something that we're seeking to address as much as we possibly can through acquisitions. And actually, when we were working on this exhibition, we had a very strategic program of acquisitions that was targeting women who were working during this period. And we've had some wonderful works come into the collection for that. So some of them are being shown for the first time in this exhibition, but they will go on to have long lives in our permanent collection. But yes, as you say, I think the, the vision that we've been given of this movement and much of the art of the 19th century is that it is very male-dominated, and that is certainly true to some extent. Women were working with um, many limitations, even the idea that, you know, the idea of the artist's camp and artists going and living and working in nature together women couldn't go and stay at camps at which male artists were present. So, you know, they were having to lug all of their canvases out on the train every day and go back in the evening. So, you know, they they had to work very hard to overcome the obstacles of um, kind of legal restrictions, but also social restrictions and understandings about propriety. But in spite of that, we still have an extraordinary number of wonderful artists. We have figures like Jane Sutherland and Clara Southern, who are better known, as well as Ethel Carrick, but also some figures who we have not seen very much of, so figures like Ina Gregory um, and Izzo Ray, Mary Myers, um, May Vale is another fascinating artist who we've included in this exhibition. So we've really worked very hard to try and broaden that story of Impressionism um, and to look at all of the different ways that these artists were working together, supporting each other, and creating a movement that was actually much more rich and diverse than we might have realised. James Sutherland in particular is an intriguing artist artist, uh, a couple of the works in the exhibition, you can see perhaps a, a narrative thread emerging. One of them more overt, the work uh, Obstruction, Box Hill, in which she paints a, a young woman looking towards a, uh, a fence behind which is a bull, possibly uh, a representation of the, the I guess, the, the, 
the bull being the men that were stopping somebody from proceeding in their career and the fence mm. literally being kind of uh, something that is stopping her from progressing. But that motif without the bull is also echoed in another of her works, Girl at a Fence, a.k.a. Girl in a Paddock. So it's as if that motif uh, is really, I guess, personally significant to her and we are literally seeing uh, the, the roadblocks in, a, in the career of a woman artist, a female artist, being played out in these works. Yes, I think absolutely. And I think, you know, Sutherland was very conscious of that. And it's interesting because I think, you know, Sutherland had encouragement and support from her family and their artists, you know, May Vale, for example, we know had a very supportive father who encouraged all of his daughters to um, have university education. Her sister was one of the first women to graduate in medicine from Melbourne University and I think there were certainly examples of them receiving individual support but the social structures were very much against them um, you know this is for most of this period when women weren't able to attend life classes at the National Gallery School for example as I mentioned their um, their mobility within society their ability to work alongside men was limited by propriety they had to be very very determined and then also you know when we look at the reviews of their exhibitions there is such a gendered quality to them. Um, the first solo exhibition of Ina Gregory's work, which came about when she was a very mature established artist. She'd been working for about 30 years and the reviewer basically lampooned her, said that she couldn't couldn't edit her work and compared the, the exhibition to a shop window. Um, so there is a very kind of patronising quality to a lot of um, the, the critical discussion of these women's work and I think they have to be extremely tough to overcome it. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Dr Angela Hessen, who's the Curator of Australian Art at the NGV, and we're discussing the current exhibition, She Oak and Sunlight, Australian Impressionism. Angela, one of the things the exhibition done, does beautifully, I thought, is it shows the, the threads and influences, the, the personal connections between artists and uh, the way they might sometimes, I guess, even uh, be friendly rivals to one another, but then also the international influence as well, such as the, the, the direct impact and influence of French Impressionism. Yes, yes. I mean, that's, I think, something that's that's a really um, rich and, I think, rewarding thing to be able to see these works and these influences side by side. And going back to your initial question about Australian Impressionism as a, as a discrete movement in relation to um, the international context, I think what we've been able to illustrate in this exhibition beautifully is how very, very direct those relationships were. So we have examples, for example, early on of a work by... Um, um, by uh, Edouard Manet, um, which is juxtaposed directly with a work by Tom Roberts, and both are painting an image of a ship's deck. And you can see all of the compositional elements, the palette, um, the subject, you know, all of these show a very, very clear relationship. And Roberts and many of his friends saw Manet as a tremendously important precursor. Later on in the show, we see the influence of James Abbott McNeil Whistler, that wonderfully innovative Anglo-American artist who's associated with aestheticism and Impressionism, and he influenced many of the artists in this show, not only in um, the composition and the subject and the palette of his work, but also in his ideas about what an exhibition should be. Um, that 9 by 5 exhibition was influenced by his Notes, Harmonies and Nocturnes, which had been shown in London in the 1880s. 
Um, and then later on, we have examples of John Russell, um, who is working directly alongside Claude Monet um, and Alfred Sisley in France. And we can see the effects of their incredibly luminous palette, you know, which is what today I think we see of as the most iconically um, impressionist thing, you know, this idea of, of landscape that's so beautifully lit, it appears almost backlit. And this is something that we see so directly in Russell's work after he has looked at those French contemporaries. So it's, it's very exciting to see those strains of influence and exchange. It's also uh, a valuable opportunity to see some truly iconic Australian artworks uh, re- in all their glory, rather than the, the reproductions that we might be familiar <laughs> with, as you say, from placemats or, or elsewhere. But also importantly, that those works are juxtaposed with... Uh, other works that show that the history of Australia and the history of Australian storytelling uh, has a much longer history than the consciously Australian narratives that were being created by the Australian Impressionists. Yes, very much so. And I think it's a thing that we have to remember when we think about works like Shearing the Rams or McCubbin's The Pioneer. And these are works that we've all effectively grown up with. And Historically, writing about these works has treated them as icons, you know, and these have been situated as almost moments of the making of Australian national identity. And we have to remember that these were a group of artists who had either arrived recently in Australia themselves, many of them were English-born, or if not they, then their parents were recently arrived. So in these great heroic um themes of often of rural labor, we see these artists really attempting to forge a sense of connection and an emotional connection to a place in which they were quite recently arrived. But I think what we really have to remember is that at the same time, First Peoples in southeastern Australia, and this is exactly you know the area that the Australian Impressionists were working, were working at the same time to make art that is enriched by an extraordinary knowledge of and connection to country. And, you know, and this is something that they have been doing for 65,000 years. So we've included in the exhibition a wonderful group of works by William Barrack, um, who was a Wurundjeri leader. And Barrack presents a really authoritative and incredible um, record of culture and country in his images of ceremony and his hunting scenes. And we felt that it was very important to provide these um, as, as a kind of reminder and a record that Australian Impressionism isn't, isn't the definitive view of landscape in Australia. It's, it's not the moment at which Australian art arrives. It's just one stage in that much longer history. She Oak and Sunlight Australian Impressionism is now showing at the Ian Potter Centre at NGV Australia at Federation Square. It's on until the 22nd of August and open from 10am till 5pm daily. It's a ticketed exhibition, so you will need to go to uh, the NGV website, www.ngv.vic.gov.au for ticket details. And naturally, it's also important uh, to minimise and stop the spread of COVID, so think about timed entries and all the those kind of things don't just rock up, perhaps, is, I think, effectively what I'm saying. Dr. Angela Hesson, thank you so much for joining us on the program today, and congratulations to you and the team at the NGV. Thank you so much, Richard. It's such a broad-ranging exhibition, uh, and uh, including uh, borrowing works from uh, public collections uh, and private collections around the country as well. I think uh, the director of the NGV quipped that there's basically no other expressionist works on show in the country at the moment, because they're all here in Melbourne. (laughs) 
Yes, I think, look, I think that is pretty much the case. I think if you want to see Impressionism at the moment, it's the place to come. And we're so lucky to have been able to do such an incredibly um, expansive show. She opened sunlight on at NGV Australia at Federation Square, the Ian Potter Centre, until the 22nd of August. I've been chatting with the curator, Dr Angela Hessen. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Considerable Sexual Licence is the latest work from Wiradjuri artist, maker, dancer, Joel Bray, who joins me in the studio now. Joel, you're my very first guest post-COVID. I know, it's so good to be here my, in the flesh. Yeah, my regular guests have started coming back in, which is nice, but all my other interviews have been on the phone, so it's so nice to have, kind of like, to be able to make eye contact in a room. And, oh, that's and, great. Yeah. So... Your, this is your latest work, as we've said, presented as part of Yerimboy. The title alone, Considerable Sexual Licence, nicely provocative. What kind of ideas did you want to explore with and, and play with here? The title comes from an article that was published in 1910 by uh, a white anthropologist who observed a ceremony that I'm pretty sure my great-great-great-grandfather was at, um, at a place called Quambone or near Quambone in New South Wales. Um, and... The article talks about a lot of different things, um, but one of these, there's this intriguing one line that he wrote, and it's written in this beautiful or, or, you know, kind of funny, starched Victorian language where he says, and on this particular night, considerable sexual license was allowed, and then says nothing more about it. But of course, um, anyone who knows my work knows that my interest is the kind of intersection of my Aboriginality with my sexuality. So this little kind of clue that maybe there was a kind of a sexual liberation, which was one of the things that we lost when the coloniser came, that has really intrigued me and began a whole kind of line of research that I started to do. And this work is a kind of a culmination of that research. Now, that intersection between uh, your Aboriginality and your sexuality has created and led to some provocative, beautiful and very striking work, uh, but also very playful work as well. Uh, let's explore that notion of playfulness a little bit, because it seems that you want the audience to to be caught up in that playful atmosphere as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a kind of, I guess, like a reason for it, like a kind of a artistic reason for it, which is that I, I view my work as continuing 60,000 years of Wiradjuri art making, which was we called ceremony, um, and which white followers would call site specific immersive theatre, right? Uh, um, so I see my work as a continue, like a contemporary continuation expression of that. But also, I just think like so much of our time is now stuck in front of screens, especially after 2020, where we passively consume YouTube or Netflix or whatever. So I want to create work where we we aren't passive, where everyone in the room, audience and performers get to, as you say, play together. And also it's much more interesting for us as performers because it means you never quite know what's going to happen in a show because the audience genuinely have, have the agency to choose your own adventure in, in my work. So in an earlier work like uh, Biladerong, which was performed in a hotel room, uh, audiences had the opportunity to offer their own stories, share their stories with you as part of the performance. You would give a hand massage, for example, as part of the show as well. Some audiences are terrified of 
audience interaction and audience participation, is the general warning for them to stay away from your work or uh, is there a safe way for them to explore work uh, without being kind of uh, uncomfortable? This is, this is my research, basically. My, my, my specialty is how to, how to create a space where everyone, like someone who wants to participate can and someone who doesn't want to and just wants to be a witness uh, is welcome to do that as well. And without spoiling too much about considerable sexual license, we've designed the space in such a way that there's you can step back and sit and, and observe. That said, we had a full house last night for our first preview and not a single person out of the 100 people didn't participate, which... I was kind of because when we were like wargaming it in the studio with no one there, we were like, oh, maybe we'll coax four or five people out to do this particular moment with us. And we were, there's a hunger. There's a hunger to participate after last year. Agreed. I think uh, the, the hunger from audiences to attend work alone. So many of the theatre companies around the country I've been speaking to, for example, have been marvelling at, uh, at ticket sales and marvelling at responses, full houses for so many shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and so forth. After, as you say, a year locked away in looking at our screens to be out as part of a community again feels so important yeah and like kind of like broader like i think any artist you speak with will have those moments where you're like is what i do important or is this just come some kind of like i don't know expression of narcissism or whatever like often often our what our work is called into question you know especially by neoliberals and then the, this this desire this thirst to return to the theater to live performance for me and talking with a lot of my peer artists has made us go actually yeah what we do is really important we're we're, we're involved in community building Building, and it feels worthwhile. Community building and a sense of uh, participation and culture. I mean, art was one of the things that got so many people through last year. Uh, and so the the return of live art is even more important. Culture really matters. And particularly for you, culture matters because you're continuing, as you said, a narrative that was disrupted by colonisation. Your research into uh, dance practices, into ceremony and community that uh, talk to us about, I guess, that aspect of your practice, the, that research and how it has, is reflected in considerable sexual licence. Um, I think when I set out, uh, you know, this is the creative process, right? You set out with a very clear idea and then you end up making a work that's completely different. <laughs> but as you say, I've been doing a lot of research into the ancient ceremonial practices of the Wiradjuri. Uh, in the end, I haven't actually used much of that material explicitly. And that's for a range of reasons. Partly a lot of it is secret and sacred. A lot of it is men's business. Part of it, even if perhaps I could have used it, I didn't feel that I had enough. I had I, I hadn't quite yet done enough. Um, hadn't, hadn't got the okay from my elders, um, and I'm I prefer, I've erred on the side of not revealing stuff or not using stuff. This will this is a long trajectory. I'll, I'll be doing this for decades ahead. Um, so. But it is kind of, I guess, homeopathically infused into the work with the basic premise that I think like one of the things that um, I wanted to black people and black men in particular, uh, we have a few tropes that we're allowed to be. We're allowed to be the footballer, we're allowed to be the boxer and we're allowed to be the inmate. It's a kind of a, like a hyper masculinity. But actually anyone who knows our community knows that we come in all different shades of colours and we're all different sexualities and we can be femme and we can be playful and we can be curious and we can be trans and we and so and we can be sexy and I, I feel like that idea of like what was what was that thing that happened a couple of years ago where that that comedian made that terrible joke about black women being ugly 
Do you remember that? Um, it, it, yes, it rings bells. It rings bells. <laughs> Warning anyway, bells that, mainly. That, that, but... kind of, that kind of thing. And so I've, I've made a work which is like, hey, look, along with all those other things that we can be, including sacred and solemn and, and ceremonial, we can also be like playful and sexy. And this work is about creating a space where we celebrate that. I mean, celebrating uh, so many things that celebrating community, celebrating connection, and as you say, celebrating uh, or ch- challenging tropes that uh, reduce Aboriginal men sometimes just to being angry, yeah. for example. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you're performing this work with Carly Shepherd. Yes. I'm performing. This is anyone who knows my work knows that I didn't up until now I've done solos. Um, and this is my first ensemble work. Um, and Carly Shepherd, who is an incredible um, Indigenous performer and maker, oh, she's just amazing. What a talent. It's been so good to have her in the room. She and I have been friends for a very long time and we've always wanted to work together. And it's been, yeah, she's been like an art wife. It's been awesome. Now, you've performed uh, live on stage with uh, a musician in the past, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it different working on stage with Carly and, I believe, what, two other performers? Two other performers, yeah. Naharika Sanapati, who's uh, an amazing um, contemporary dancer um, and who's also brought her kind of South Asian heritage into the into the room, which has been really beautiful. And Dan Ewell, who a lot of people might know as Dandrogeny, who's a bit of a local queer personality um, and... Yeah, it's an all-queer cast, um, mix of blackfellas and whitefellas, um, and it's been, it's been awesome. It's amazing. It's been, it's been a really, as, a, as someone who's a bit of a control freak, <laughs> it's been a really great lesson for me in, in realising that actually if I unclench my grip a little bit from the work and allow other people to come in and make their offerings and make their contributions, then the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the end result is something, it's my, I think it's my best work to date, and it's, that's because it's not in just my work. It comes back to what we were saying earlier about the importance of being playful. You're kind of by letting go of that control, presumably you're having more fun in the process. Absolutely. And doing things through community rather than just, you know, that capitalist, like every man for himself kind of vibe. The work is called Considerable Sexual Licence. It's being presented as part of Yirrimboy 2021 by Darabin Arts Speakeasy. So it's on in the main hall at Northcote Town Hall Arts Centre on the top of uh, what is known as Rucker's Hill. Uh, I would love to know what it's originally original name was before it was colonised. You know what? I'm going to go find that out. I'll tell you next time I'm here. Okay. Uh, tickets are from 25 bucks, and for booking and more information, you can go to www.darabinarts.com.au. So that's darabinarts.com.au to see Joel Bray's considerable sexual licence on now until the 22nd of May at Northcote Town Hall. Joel, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great to see you in the flesh. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Voyage is a new Australian musical at 45 Downstairs, exploring the convict era and the experiences of women migrants and colonists in that early Australian period. It's presented by the Good Girl Song Project at 45 Downstairs. Joining me on the line, writer Helen Begley and performer Carly Ellis. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Richard. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Helen, let's start with you. Where did the idea for creating this story about uh, the, the the female colonial experience come from? Well, I was uh, reading a book 
called Damned Towards and God's Police by Ann Summers. And I came across a little article about some women that arrived here in the 1830s and the welcome that they received from 2,000 men waiting on the pier for them. That, and uh, that, that sounds like a slightly creepy welcome, I have to say. Uh, it was not a pleasant welcome at all because those 2,000 men were actually jeering at them and insulting them as they walked up the pier to their accommodation. And uh, I just was completely flabbergasted by that image. And um, my response is to write songs. And so I wrote a song about it. And then I started coming across these girls in Sydney and different places and came across the work of uh, historian Elizabeth Russian and started writing more songs about these women. And it just kind of took on a life of its own until this year where, well, COVID hit and um, I got a chance to work on a script with the dramaturg by the name of Meta Cohen and we got ourselves a director and, um, yeah, it's just it's become this, this beautiful show about early immigration experience of a particular group of people. Now, Carly, uh, you're one of the performers in the show and uh, you and Penny Larkins, between you, you're playing, what, 13 different characters, men and women, uh, and presenting a, a range of experiences from this early colonial period. So I play predominantly two young women who are throughout the piece. One called The Good Girl, who's sort of the voice of the Irish every woman. Um, she's a, a character who's sort of based on the combined experiences of the Irish immigrants. Um, and then I also play Isabella Gibson, who is a real person, um, and she was a, a young English woman, slightly from a more middle-class background. And we also play a number of... We play men. We play some, uh, some men who are based on extracts, real extracts and letters, like the superintendent on the ship. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite an acting challenge between the two of us. Uh, and also the fact that then uh, live music on stage uh, mm. kind of add, adding a, another dimension. And Helen, in terms of the, the musical style that you're working in, you've, what, kind of fused uh, these historical stories with an Australian folk tradition, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I actually come from a folk music background and have played at folk festivals for many years. And so, so I have that sound imbued in, in my writing. And also, uh, there's, there's not that many stories or folk songs about women of, of that time. So I, I guess I also wanted to address the dearth of women's stories in, in the folk music scene. Uh, in terms of staging mm. Voyage, which uh, is on at 45 downstairs from the 13th until the 23rd of May, how many musicians on stage? Helen, are you playing live or are you sitting back? Yeah. And, yeah. No, I'm playing live. I'm the guitar player. Uh, there's three musicians on stage. We have Penelope Swales on whistle, Kylie Morrigan on uh, fiddle, and myself on guitar. Carly, with that live backdrop then supporting yeah. uh, you and Penny as performers, Mm-hmm. Talk to us about, I guess, the some of the emotional through lines of the show, because obviously music brings words to life in such a, a different way from acting or presenting. Yeah, but I'm sure there's still a lot of uh, emotion to embody and explore through the show. Uh, and one of the the, I, the things that I guess fascinates me about this production is women on board ship together forming kind of very, very strong friendships uh, and arriving in a colony um, in which, I guess, uh, class hierarchies and uh, were so deeply entrenched. Uh, you've got that, you've got the fact that 
they are arriving as free settlers in the middle of the convict era as well. So there's a lot to kind of play with and explore there in terms of kind of the the dramatic tone of the work. It's it's a mammoth task and we're really lucky as actors because we we constantly are changing character and shifting emotional gears, you know what I mean? Um, We're really lucky that the music is sort of like the the strength and stay in a way. It's the thing that, that guides us in that, you know, there are certain melodies and Helen, you know, has written that based on sort of the folk traditions. She can probably speak more about that. But um, there are certain melodies that are recurring during the show and they, they just bring you back to where you're meant to be and what character you are and where you are. And um, there's some beautiful songs on board the ship that Penny and I share that are some, you know, are quite a raunchy jig and one is a almost a cappella song, but they they paint the, the sort of auditory picture of where we are meant to be emotionally, if, if that makes sense. So um, it's really lovely having the music. It actually helped guide our performances. It's the, the backbone of that, which is fantastic. Helen, in terms of presenting this show, obviously one element that uh, is very clearly being ext- explored is an antidote to the Australian mateship myth, perhaps, the uh, women's stories that have been left out of history, women's friendships being celebrated on stage. But simultaneous to that, you're also presenting or you might even perhaps be accused of glorifying the the colonial experience which was uh, directly responsible for the destruction of uh, the, or the attempted destruction, I should say, of the oldest living culture in the world. Yeah, that's right. And look, all the way through, I've been really aware of that. Um, and so what we did was brought on um, an Aboriginal consultant. Her name's Nola Turner-Jensen. And she worked with me predominantly to to just tease out those, those issues and the, the problems of writing a, a story set in colonial times. And she did, she did quite a number of script edits. So that what we're doing is we're presenting the girls' experience as immigrants, but we're also presenting them as women who were inherently racist towards um, the indigenous people um, they they didn't they didn't challenge their own uh, attitudes towards indigenous people and we have different characters um, voicing different different kind of perspectives uh, about their uh, position as colonial white women so we haven't shied away from that that issue and that problem of writing as a white from a white perspective um, in colonial times. It's a, a challenging uh, idea to explore dramatically, I would I, I would certainly imagine. The fact that on one level yep. uh, these stories of women overcoming the odds uh, of kind of struggling against uh, a patriarchal culture that saw them almost as, as product to be exported from the UK to the new colony. But simultaneously to that, as as you've established, the fact that they were part of the the English uh, colonial machine, so it's a yeah, dramatically and personally, lots of tensions to explore. Absolutely, absolutely. But look, I think it's a really important question, really important questions to explore, especially because I am a white woman, and all of the cast are, and many of us are from have ancestors from that colonial period. And I actually think it's really important for us to have a look at that and have a look at our position in in the colony or our family's positions in the colony and really question what what was going on there and how our family's 
potentially contributed to colonisation and invasion. So I don't. I, I think it's time that we do, stop shying away from those questions and actually really look at them and um, have conversations about them with people like Nola Turner Jensen, who is an amazing Aboriginal historian and, yeah, was really instrumental in teasing out these questions there and helping get that script right. So, you know, it's still challenging and potentially it's still really distressing to Indigenous people. And we do, at the beginning of the piece, uh, have an acknowledgement of country and we acknowledge how distressing this story might be. And I think that's a really important thing to do too. Voyage is being presented by the Good Girl Song Project at 45 Downstairs. I'll give the, uh, the dates and website details in just a moment. One of the things that also intrigues me about the work is that uh, you're, you're going to, Carly, you're going to be presenting this complex story, an imp- important historical story, uh, not just to regular theatre-going audiences, but a whole heap of uh, school kids as well, because uh, I believe it's on the, the VCA... Uh, playlist, yeah. The, yeah, the playlist. So uh, you'll have a bunch of... Uh, uh, certainly uh, daytime matinee audiences full of young mm-hmm. people who presumably kind of some of this uh, will be familiar to them because it's on, on the syllabus or it's in the history books. But you're also then going to be opening their eyes to perhaps a, a different world and certainly the, a very different experience from their own lived experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're on the VCAA playlist for drama this year. So VCA students in drama, um, where one of the five six, um, works that were selected as part of that um, so we've already done a few school incursions and we've taken taken the show to school. And it is really fascinating because the, the feedback we're often given is that the stories, particularly about these women, that um, kids in that age group, they, they haven't heard it. And you can see the eyes opening in the audience as we're, as we're performing, as they're hearing a new take on what actually happened and some, some of their ancestors too. Um, and then, of course, after the show, we do post-show chats. They get to ask us all sorts of things about our acting or our accents sometimes or, you know. But um, it's, it's really lovely to have that conversation with a, with a different generation of people who haven't heard this before. It's been really lovely so far. Voyage is a new Australian musical at 45 downstairs uh, from the 13th to the 23rd of May, uh, an exploration of uh, the experiences of women in the convict era who were kind of many of them sent to Australia uh, after advertising kind of offered free passage and saying lucrative work work awaits and then you end up in what is essentially a giant open-air prison colony. Uh, I'm intrigued to see the work myself, Voyage by the Good Girl Song Project. Uh, it is at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, from the 13th to the 23rd of May, previewing on the 13th, opening on Friday the 14th of May and running through until the 23rd. You can uh, jump online uh, to go to thegoodgirlsongproject.com for more information or you can also visit the 45 Downstairs website for booking details. I've been chatting with the project's writer, Helen Begley, and performer, Carly Ellis. Thank you both for joining me on the program today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 